It's good to be uh, back at the Lee site. Uh, obviously, I'm over in Downham, and it's just great to be able to come and preach to you this morning. Um, I thought that I would maybe just start by asking if you've ever been to a wedding. I don't know when the last time you went to a wedding. I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago of um, preaching at Billy and Zoe's wedding. Obviously, you come here over at the Downham site, which was a, um, a brilliant day. And when you go to a wedding, if you're married, you inevitably you start thinking about your own wedding. You know, and so um, I was starting to think back to the wedding that me and Sylvie had. Uh, we got married just under two years ago, in fact, here. And we were a little bit greedy. Um, we thought, you know, we'll have two weddings. And so, in fact, I've got a photo of our uh, traditional Nigerian ceremony. That's me and my wife, Sylvia. Um, I think I look pretty dapper. Um, but I'm definitely outshone by my beautiful wife, as I'm sure you all agree. Uh, and then a week later, here in this building, we had our kind of traditional British ceremony. I've got a photo of that one for you as well, um, which was just taken just over there. So it's great to be back in this building. It's where we got married. And um, in fact, can we take that off? Because people are going to start laughing because I mean, how's he managed to get out, go out of Sylvia? You know, she's definitely, she's definitely, you know, the better looking one. But, you know, God is good. Um, God is good. But it's great to be back. Kind of at Lee, it does very much feel like a home from home for us. Um, and today I want to talk to you, I want to talk about a story in, in John's Gospel where Jesus goes to a wedding. And there's an issue at the wedding. If you've been involved in planning weddings, you'll know that there's so many things to try and think about. A lot of things that you can get stressed about. Is the weather going to be all right? Are people going to turn up at our wedding? We're thinking, you know, is there going to be enough wine? Is there going to be enough jollof? You know, and you kind of have, you know, you're kind of two halves of the same coin. Well, at this wedding, there was an issue. Is there going to be enough wine? Jesus at a wedding and the wine runs out. And so we're going to read that together. And we'll see that in this simple story, there's lessons about obedience, about faith, and about God's provision for us. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to John 2. Um, and I'm going to read that to you. Just to kind of set the scene, Jesus has just arrived to start his public ministry. He's about 30. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. And he started to gather a few disciples, a few kind of people to follow him. And he finds himself at this wedding. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is God's word. Let's pray together, friends. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning, to look at your word. 
Lord, we pray, allow us to come humbly before you to receive. Lord, allow you to speak to us. Give us ears that will hear. Give us eyes that will see. We don't want to leave here the same that we came in. We want to be transformed by your word. We want to be changed because we've encountered you. And so, Lord, as we, as we look at this passage together, we pray, will you have your way amongst us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus has been invited to a wedding. We, we don't know what, if he's a family friend or, or how he's been involved. But what we do know is weddings in those days were kind of three-day feasts. It would be a, a feast and it wouldn't be like a wedding now where there's guest lists and table plans. It kind of, the whole community would have come and been involved. It would have spanned over a few days. There would have been lots of food and lots of drink and celebrating with the couple that had been married. But there is a problem at this wedding. There's an issue straight away that is brought to the attention of Jesus by his mother, which I love. She comes to him and she says what I think is a, quite a, a typical mum comment to make. They have no wine. When I was younger, this is the sort of thing my mum would do. She wouldn't come to me and say, can you hoover your room? She would say, your room needs hoovering. You know? She would say, can you bring the shopping in? She would say, the shopping needs bringing in. It's kind of just like a statement. You know? and this woman, she doesn't say, can you get some more wine? She says, there's no wine. And Jesus, like a typical son, is like, what's he got to do with me? You know, why are you telling me? Why are you involving me? And it's not my business. You know, what's he got to do with me? And uh, which I just find, find quite striking. But there's an issue. There's no wine. And that's an issue for a few reasons. Firstly, this culture was an honor and shame culture. And so to run out of wine would have been a great shame for them and the family. The, the bridegroom, it was his job to sort out the wine. So it would have been a great shame on him. People would have been humiliating. They've run out of wine. You know, what's this about? So it would have been, so as soon as Jesus knows that, he knows he's going to have to get involved. He can't turn a blind eye. He can't pretend he's not heard it. That's not what he's about. He's going to have to get involved. But not only is it literally a problem, at the start of John's gospel, this is very symbolic. Because not to get drunk on wine, although some people use this passage to justify drinking with wine, but in the Old Testament, loads, the, the wine is, is a symbol of joy and life. In Psalm 104, it talks about how, uh, you know, continue to drink, it will bring life to man. In Proverbs 3, it talks about fill your vats so they overflow with wine. Wine was a, a symbol of joy. And so this is really symbolic. Because what Jesus is saying here is quite clear that first century Judaism, the people, they're barren, they're dry. It's symbolic of their spiritual dryness, that they're living under law, they're living under the old way, they're, they're not kind of experiencing him in his fall. Jesus says in John 10, I've come that they may know life, and life in all his fullness. So even in this miracle, he's going to be saying, I've come to bring new wine, I've come to do a new thing, I've come to change the way things are done, because you are spiritually dry and barren people. So it's symbolic, there is no wine. And I love Jesus' response. He says, woman... If I tried that with my mother, I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> I would not be standing before you now. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I should have tried that one once. Joe, who have your room? My hour has not come. You know? <laughs> I don't recommend it to anyone. This is what Jesus says. In fact, some modern translations put the phrase dear woman. Because they don't want it to come across like Jesus is being rude. Oh, Jesus can't be rude. But the original text, the kind of the Greek, it doesn't say dear woman. It just says woman. And 
you know, commentators will say, D.A. Carson, who kind of a commentator in the Bible, at the very least, at the very, very least, this is a mild rebuke from Jesus to his mother. At the very least. He's, he's being quite confrontational. Because he knows that he's going to have to get involved. And we'll go into the reasons maybe why he gets kind of grumpy and a little bit rude. And he says, my hour has not yet come. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? My hour has not yet come. Well, in the Bible, the hour is referring to the hour of his crucifixion. In, you know, Jesus talks about his hour a lot. In John 7, they're trying to arrest Jesus. They couldn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. In John 13, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And he says, before they do that, the hour is coming. In John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And he's saying, Father, the hour is coming. Glorify your son. The hour is referring to the moment where Jesus is going to be crucified. And so he's saying, it's almost saying like this. Why are you asking me? It's not my time to die yet. Which is quite strange, isn't it? You know, the whole gospel is in that sentence. The whole gospel is in that one phrase. It's not my time to die yet. Because... Jesus, I said to you earlier, he's at a wedding, and I don't know if you've been to a wedding recently, like I asked. But sometimes when you go to weddings, you kind of can seize people, often single people or people that are preparing to get married, have kind of got this stargaze look on their face, you know, kind of day, you can catch them daydreaming, thinking about maybe their own wedding, thinking about maybe a time when they will get married. Well, I think Jesus here is thinking ahead to his own wedding. That the Bible talks that we are like his bride and that he's a bridegroom and that we will be together. And I think he's thinking ahead to his wedding. Because the bridegroom, they had, he had one job. And he's a, you know, a bit of an idiot. He couldn't even sort out wine for his wedding. I, I don't know what your job was. I, I did quite a few things. But my, my dad, um, when he got married, my mum says to me that I told, my, you know, I told him that he's got one job to do. Just turn up. <laughs> Isn't that, you can't ruin anything that way. You just, you just, just make sure you're there. He had one, and the bridegroom's got one job. Just make sure there's enough wine for everyone. But he couldn't do that. Maybe Jesus is thinking, when it comes to my wedding, when it comes to me and my people, I'm going to provide enough wine till the end of the age. I'm going to provide enough wine for the people from this day to the next forevermore. And you see in a miracle in a minute, he provides wine by the gallon. Gallons and gallons of wine, liters and liters of wine. And he said, so when it comes to me, when I am the bridegroom, I'll make sure there's wine aplenty. And what's also interesting about this exchange, just a quick aside, is that Jesus is almost starting this separation from his, from his mother. Up until this point, you know, Jesus is, Mary's been his mother and Jesus has been his son. But you'll start to see that Mary knows that she too, at some point, is going to have to come under the authority of Jesus. That she, is, she needs him as a Messiah as much as anyone else. And so Jesus is kind of, this would have been painful for Mary. Because she's kind of, it's, start, it's the start of this kind of separation. You see it through the Gospels. They kind of don't have a, that kind of mother-son relationship as much. Because Jesus has started his ministry and he's going to be her saviour as much as anybody else. And so it would have been painful, which is why I think Mary's response is pretty remarkable because she could have said a whole load of things to Jesus when she speak, when, you know, she's been addressed in that way. She could have, you know, don't you talk to me like that. And it got me thinking about my, um, my nanny, Sterry, before she passed away. She was in her 80s. She was around our house, my mum and dad's house at the time. And my nan, her daughter, was kind of in her 60s. And my nan made a comment to my nanny, Sterry, you know, um, maybe a little bit rude. And I remember my nanny, Sterry, says to her, you're not too old for a smack. You know, <laughs> and you sort of think, maybe Mary could have said that to Jesus. You know, she could have, but no, she's so humble in her, in, in her kind of response. What an example she, 
looks at Jesus, she looks at the servants, and she says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. If there's one thing you take away from this morning, one kind of soundbite that rings in your ears, it's that phrase, because that is the mantra of the Christian life. Do whatever he tells you. That's, that's what we do. We follow Jesus. We do whatever he says. And so we've got these first five verses of kind of set up the story. There's a wedding. They've run out of wine. Jesus has been called in. Mary's like, do whatever he tells you. And so the next we're going to see, well, what does he tell him to do? What does Jesus tell him to do? And we see that in verse 6. He says, now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These kind of purification jars, they were huge, huge. Each holding 20 to 30 gallons, just like 100 odd liters. If you were to fill all of them up, someone else smarter than me said it's like 900 bottles of wine that would be full. And Really, these two are symbolic because they were used, the Jewish people would kind of use them to clean themselves. It was the, the kind of, it was like the way to make yourself clean and pure. In fact, in John 3, they start saying, well, we don't like this baptism. We don't want to be baptized because we clean ourselves in this way. So again, Jesus is just saying, no, those old ways, the, thing, the, the way that you used to have to eat certain things and drink certain things and do certain things, they're going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change things. I'm going to take that and I'm going to fill it with new wine. There's going to be new wine. And so this is what Jesus is starting to teach. And so he says to them, right, go and fill all of them with water. And they go and fill them to water with the brim. Now, if I'm in the story at this point, I don't know what you're doing. But this is the moment where I think, Jesus, can I have a word? <laughs> I say, listen, Jesus, they've not run out of water, mate. <laughs> they've run out of wine. What, what, what are you doing? You know, you're making me do, you know, you sort of think, I know best. You're making me do all this work to fill them with water. They've, not, they've got loads of water. We need wine, Jesus. You know, get yourself together. That's what I would want to do. And, and I think that's how a lot of us like to live our Christian lives. Do whatever he tells you as long as it makes sense. It's true though, isn't it? Do whatever he tells you as long as you think it's a good idea. Do whatever he tells you as long as it seems logical to you and seems like something that you think, yeah, I should do that. That's not obedience. That's just agreeing with somebody. That's not the place where the miracle happens. Miracles happen when there's obedience. Obedience is the place where miracles happen. You might want to write that down. Miracles happen. That's what I'm saying. Obedience. God's after people that are obedient and faithful that will do things that seem silly to do. Going to speak to someone in your office about Jesus does not in our culture seem like a logical thing to do or a sensible thing to do. He's looking for an obedient people. Praying for someone that they may be healed because they've got a sickness does not seem like a logical thing to do. But God calls us to lay hands on the sick and to be obedient. Having maybe you, if you, you're sitting opposite someone, you think, I think, I, I think God's given me a word for that person. Going and saying to them, excuse me, I, I, I feel like God's speaking to me, I just want to say, that does not seem like a logical thing to do. But that sometimes is the place where miracles happen. That's the place, that's where God moves. Because he's after an obedient and a faithful people. And so we see that lesson straight away. Will we as a church be a people that are obedient to what he's calling us to do? Will this week, will we be obedient to the things that he's telling us to do? Because he's given us a whole load of things to do already. I'm just waiting for something else. No, he's given us loads of things. We've just done a series on reach. You've got an Alpha course coming up. There's Easter. There's so many. Invite people to Alpha. Invite people to Easter. Share your faith with others. There's so many things. He's after people that are obedient. And so this is kind of where he says it. And so they fill it with jars. Uh, They fill it with water. And then he, he takes some water. And he says he takes it to the master of the feast, kind of the top dog, the person who's in charge. Can you imagine being that servant? I bet he was scared. 
he's kind of got this water in his glass and he's walking over and then he gives it to him. And then when he drinks it, he's going, this is the best wine that I've ever had. You think, where, where does the miracle happen? Friends, I'm convinced the miracle takes place when he's carrying the, the water over to him. That's when the miracle takes place. When he's outside of his comfort zone doing something that, you know, maybe he thought was completely ridiculous. Jesus has put him in the deep end. He's put him out of his comfort zone. And that is where the miracle takes place. It reminds me a little bit of even Matthew 14, where Jesus just has fed 5,000 people up a mountain. And then he says, right, immediately, verse 1, he says, immediately he tells them, he makes them get in a boat and goes out into the water. Immediately. He makes them do that. And then there's a massive storm. Now, these men, they were fishermen, some of them. They would have grown up on the water. They weren't stupid. They would have known that maybe there's signs there's a storm coming. But, so he made them go and do it. Maybe they were, oh, no, we don't want to get in the boat yet. We'll stay with you. But Jesus sends them into a storm. Why? Because he knows that outside of your comfort zone, in the storm, that's where the intimacy happens. Some of us were in a storm. And that's where the intimacy takes place. Those servants, they probably felt like there was in a bit of a storm. They're doing something that seems ridiculous. That's where the intimacy was. And then Jesus walks out on the water, and at first they don't recognize him. They think he's a ghost or a spirit. How often have we been in a storm, and we don't recognize Jesus? We've all been there. You're in the middle of a storm. Jesus is always close. He doesn't go anywhere. We just don't recognize him. Yeah, Jesus is distant from me. No, he's not. We just can't. We're failing to recognize him. He's always there. And the other thing I love about this story is you always think, Jesus, why would you do it that way? Why did you? Because he could have easily just clicked his fingers, and then empty jars could have been full of wine. He could have gone and held his hands out and filled them with wine. But he chose, he wanted the servants to be involved. And it's a reminder again for us, church, that God does not need us. Jesus doesn't need you to fulfill his plans and purposes on this earth. He doesn't need you, but he wants to use you. Because he wants intimacy with you. Because he wants relationship with you. He wants you to trust him and be faithful to him. And he wants to show you what he's doing. It says at the end that after this, the, the, the disciples, they believed in him. He wants to do things in us and through us that we might continue to believe in him and be obedient to him. Amen? Amen. And so you, you kind of see that in this story. And we, it moves on. So the, the kind of, he takes it and then he calls the bridegroom over and he's like, you, what amazing man you are. And the bridegroom's like, well, you know, you know, yeah, I gave it a go. You know, I, I read that story and I think, what a liberty. I think... What, he's got some front. I thought, that is out of order because he's just taking all... Jesus has done this remarkable miracle and this bridegroom's getting all the credit. Well, isn't that the same with me and you? Isn't that how God works? We get to go to heaven. We get to know the Father. We get peace with God. Jesus has done all the work. We get all the credit. It's credited to us as righteousness. We can stand righteous before God and we haven't done a single thing. We are like the bridegroom in this story. Jesus is making it plainly clear right at the very start. From this story, people will see it and know he does all the work and we're the beneficiaries of it. You and I benefit because of what he has done. It's amazing. And you see it right at the very start. It's not just a silly miracle turning water into one. No, Jesus is, is doing something in here. And, it, and really, it's, it's a sign. So after he does that, and you, you kind of see it, this is what it says. It says that he done this. It says that this was the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. That manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The whole of John's gospel, there's loads of these little miracles. And loads of them, that we call them signs. They reveal more of who Jesus is. Little glimpses. Not the whole thing, little glimpses. Jesus is looking for people that are humble enough to see the signs and see who he is. Some of us, the signs are all around us. Sometimes we just haven't got eyes that we'll see. 
There's the Pharisees and the people of the law. They refused to see. They were hardened in heart. They were arrogant. They were proud. These signs would come and they said, no, he's not who he is. He's not, he's not the Messiah. They refused to see the signs. And it, it reminds me of a, a funny story I remember being told as a kid about, a, well, it's not really that funny, but a man, who, a man who's drowning, which is not funny, but, and um, it's just a story. A man's drowning and he prays to God, God save me, and God tells him he's going to save him. And then a, a kind of speedboat comes along and says, jump in. He says, no, 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 God's going to save me. And then a, a rescue boat comes along, tries to get me. He says, no, 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 leave me alone. God's going to save me. And then a, a Coast Guard helicopter comes and he refuses. He says, no, no, God's going to save me. Well, the man drowns. And he gets to heaven and says, God, you said you were going to save me. And God says, I sent a speedboat, a rescue boat, a helicopter. You know, what more do you want? And that's a, it's a silly story. But the sentiment is that, is that God is speaking to us and giving us so many signs that we're the ones that are failing to see. It's not that they're not there. You know, maybe you're here today. Maybe you don't even follow Jesus. But you've seen all these signs around you, people's lives that have been transformed. You've seen things. You're thinking, what would be humble enough to accept the signs, see who Jesus really is? Because Jesus kept performing these signs until the very end. The ultimate sign was when he goes to the cross and he's crucified and rises again. That was the, the ultimate sign. And they all point to that. And so I, I do want to challenge you. Or maybe you're here as a believer and, and, and you're kind of in a place where you think, you know what, I just need to see... Jesus, again, I just need a sign. He's, probably, he's already given it to you. We've just got about eyes that are open. And we pray even today that our eyes will be opened again to really see who he is and to really see what he's doing amongst us. And I kind of want to start to draw to a close with this. In the, uh, the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, God is referred to loads and loads as the bridegroom. You, know, you kind of get this imagery. He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. Now, that is a theme that Jesus himself picks up on. Elsewhere in the Gospels, you might know the story where Jesus' disciples, they're being quizzed about why they're not fasting. And Jesus kind of says, why should the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is here? Now, we won't go into that, but it's this idea that Jesus refers to him. He takes on this mantra as the bridegroom. And John picks up on that theme. The writer John, through his Gospel. Because John also writes the final book of the Bible, Revelation, which obviously we're going to do a series on. And in that final book in Revelation, John talks about the kind of, in the end, when Christ comes again, that we will be like his bride and he'll be our bridegroom. And this is what he says in Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then it goes on, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be a, a marriage supper. There's going to be a wedding feast that we will be presented as bright and pure and lovely. And so now we get a little bit of an insight as to why, we've, why Jesus is being so grumpy with his mother. Because he, he's saying, listen, I've come that they may know joy and that they may know life. I've come that I can make them my people. I've come that I can provide an ultimate wedding feast. But in order to do that, I have to die. In order to do that, I have to suffer and I have to drink the cup of judgment and guilt because we will be presented to Christ as pure and white and lovely and spotless and pure. But each one of us is not that. None of us is that really. We've all sinned. We've all things done, done things wrong. None of us here can stand here today saying, I'm spotless and pure and lovely. 
but that's how a bride should be presented. And so Christ says, you know what, and when that hour does come, when I do die, I'm going to take on all of their mess, all of their dirt, all of their rubbish, all of their guilt, all of their shame, all the things they've ever done. I'm going to take it upon myself so they can be presented as pure and lovely and bright and as a beautiful bride as you'd see at a wedding. That is why he's getting stressed and angry. Because he knows that he's coming. It's not yet, but he knows. Right at the very start, Jesus knew, I've come to die. Why? So that he can provide wine till the end of the age. So that you and I, there'll be a day when we'll feast with him. And there will be, it will never run out. It will overflow and overflow. And there'll be an almighty wedding feast. And so this, this story, sometimes you kind of read it as a, you know, a, you know, kind of a bit of a funny story that Jesus does. No, this is one of the most significant miracles you'll read. Because right at the very start, Jesus is making it clear. This is my first miracle. And he wants to make it clear to everyone, this is why I've come. This is why I've come, and this is who I am. I've come that you may know life, and life in all its fullness. I am your bridegroom. You will be my bride, and the hour will come when I will die. What a gospel. What a miracle. What a story. What a God it is that we serve. I'm going to kind of have some time as we go through just to really worship him. Come and see the signs. Come and respond to Jesus. Come and worship him. Thank him that he is your bridegroom. I'm going to pray for us. Can I ask the band to come up? I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to worship God together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this remarkable story in this gospel. We thank you that we can be called your bride. We thank you that we will be presented as spotless and pure and lovely. We thank you that that's all because of what you've done on the cross. And Lord, we pray, help us to be an obedient and faithful people. Lord, we want to be a people who do whatever you tell us. We want to be a people who go wherever you send us. We want to be a people who who, who follow you with obedience and faithfulness. But Lord, it's tough. And so we pray, help us. Fill us with your spirit. Remind us again of who you are and what you're doing. Fill us afresh this morning with faith for what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, I thank you that you are our ultimate provider. I thank you that you have provided wine until the end of the age. It will never run out. And we are beneficiaries of that. And we worship you, King Jesus. We worship you because you are worthy of praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.